From OTMP, this is your COVID-19 update. It is Tuesday, the 30th of March, 2021. All public health interventions represent a balance between the rights of the individual versus the rights and benefits of the population. Management of epidemics of infectious disease ultimately always involves political decisions. Restriction of movement and compulsory quarantine is one such political intervention. The recent gym cluster has highlighted this issue. In our experience, the majority of OTMP patients are significantly more worried about the personal implications of the public health regulations than they are about the disease itself. This is especially the case for families with young children. For this podcast, Dr. David Owens once again sat down with Professor Ben Cowling. They discussed the Hong Kong public health strategy in comparison to that used in other countries. They also discussed the increasing evidence of effectiveness for COVID vaccines and the challenges for vaccine hesitancy in Hong Kong. This interview took place before the recent suspension of the Binotech vaccines in Hong Kong. They both emphasised the importance of honest and open communication of safety data, whilst both expecting the evidence to confirm the vaccines to be safe. They have both been vaccinated. Ben, it's been a month or so since we last caught up and the fourth wave continued to settle. And then we have, we've just had this recent little kick up related to the gym cluster. What if you could talk through an explanation as to why quarantine is important in epidemics of infectious disease? Yeah, sure. So there's two different ways we're using quarantine in Hong Kong. One is for people that come into the city and they have to stay in isolation for 21 days now. It was 14 before. That's the classic use of quarantine. The origins as hundreds of years ago in the Adriatic Sea, in a a couple of cities, Venice and and another one, where they, they wanted people, when they came to those places, to stay outside the city first for a period of time so they didn't bring infection in with them. So wait outside for 40 days. That's quarantinas in Latin or Italian. And, uh, and then when it's all clear, they can come into the city. So that's the, the original use of quarantine. But the way that we're using it now is a very targeted approach to stop uh, contacts of cases who may have been infected to try and stop transmission at that point. So we know when we pick up cases of COVID-19 in the community with the PCR testing, people test positive. At that point, it's often a few days after their symptoms have appeared. Not always, but quite often a few days after their symptoms have appeared. And we know that the contagiousness of COVID-19 is highest around the time symptoms appear. So that means by the time we detect cases, if they're going to transmit, they often already have transmitted infection to the people around them, their family members, their social contacts, their occupational contacts. But those people that they've transmitted infection to may test negative. So the case is positive today after a few days of symptoms. They may have already passed on infection to their family members. But if we test the family members today, they'll be negative. But maybe they've already been infected. They're incubating the infection and it's going to appear within the next few days or or week, maximum up to maybe 10 to 14 days. And so the strategy we use in Hong Kong, also in, in other parts of Asia, is to quarantine those close contacts in case they have been infected. Most likely they haven't, but if they have been infected by putting them in quarantine, we're preventing any further onwards transmission. So it's like getting ahead of the virus to stop it from spreading. And it's a targeted measure. Uh, In Hong Kong, it's it's probably brought down transmission by about 25%. If we weren't doing it, we'd have to do other social distancing measures to compensate for that. So it's a trade-off really for Hong Kong that we have this 
contact tracing and quarantine in place as a targeted way to find infections and to stop them from spreading. If we weren't using that, if we just used social distancing, then everybody's lives would be disrupted. So the concept is we, we have more disruption on a minority and less disruption on the majority of the rest of the population. And it's, it's 14 days in, in Penny's Bay or, or a hotel waiting to see if you've been infected. And for close contacts, it's running at the moment at about 5%. So of all the people that go into quarantine facilities, about 5% do eventually test positive at some point, And the 95% come back out at the end of their stay, testing negative and all clear. And there's a maybe an economic calculation about the, the trade-off of how broad do you want to cast the net for close contacts? Would you like more than 5% to be testing positive or less than 5%? Because obviously those 95% were quarantined when they were not ultimately testing positive, but you didn't know that at the time you quarantined them. For family members, it's higher. I think for husbands and wives, it's, it's maybe as high as even 50%. But for all the close contacts going into quarantine, the average is about 5%. So that seems to be a pretty reasonable rate to think about because it means you're catching a lot of those cases. You're mentioning there those 5% and, and people might look at that and say, those are not very big numbers. We've only had you know 12,000 cases or something. So 5% is a few hundred cases. But your work early on in this epidemic on, on transmission dynamics showed that any one of those cases could spring a cluster of another 100, 200, 500, couldn't it? Could you maybe explain that, the importance of the sort of individual cases? Yeah, what, what we've seen consistently over the past year in Hong Kong is outbreaks triggered by just one case at the beginning, spreading to lots and lots of other people. The, the, the gym cluster may be triggered by just one or two cases. The ballroom dancing cluster a few months ago just triggered probably by one or two cases. And in each case, if that person had been tracked down, because they must have got infected somehow, if they'd been tracked down and put into quarantine facilities, those clusters wouldn't have occurred. So some cases don't seem to transmit to anyone else, but some cases do seem to cause these very large outbreaks. And then for the gym cluster very recently, that's had a lot of knock-on impact with a lot of businesses having to close, a lot of other people having to go to quarantine, all because of just one case that triggered the whole thing. And so it, it's really, really important to do that targeted contact tracing to try and track down as many as possible. We'll never know what would have happened if, if these 5% of people hadn't been in quarantine, if they'd been in the community. Maybe some of them would have then triggered further outbreaks and we'd have more and more cases in the community. So I, I think quarantine's valuable. The contact tracing in the quarantine is helping in Hong Kong and it's going to continue to help. Let's consider that the role of a, of a public health community is to protect the well-being of the population. In Hong Kong, so far, we're running, I think, around about 30 deaths per million over the last 15, 16 months. So that compares to about 1,800 deaths per million in the, in the UK and about 1,600 in the US. So 50 to 60 times more likely to, to die in those countries and also significantly more likely to have general interruption to quality of life. We haven't really had lockdowns, have we? So it's a sort of, it's a trade-off, as you say, of targeted social distancing measures, bringing inconvenience to the minority, but bringing measurable benefits to the population. Would that seem a fair assessment to you? Yeah, I think in, in Hong Kong, we've, we've done pretty well. We've had cumulatively, I think, about 11,000 cases. My team's doing some analysis to see how many infections that might correspond to. We think about half of 1% of the population may have been infected so far. So maybe 40,000 people, something like that in Hong Kong. It's really a very small number. Compare that to some European countries, United States, 
they're talking 5, 10, 20% in some areas of people having been infected. Some areas, maybe even more than that, some really densely populated areas that have been hard hit. And so we've done really, really well to keep infections to a minimum, 200 deaths. If you were to scale up that 0.5% infected to a larger fraction of the population infected, you can imagine the kind of impact that there would have been. And we've done that without having the total lockdowns that we've seen elsewhere, the stay-at-home orders, the total gathering bans where you can't even leave your home almost. You're allowed to leave for one hour a day for exercise in the UK, I remember. So we've done really well. We've balanced the need to stay open internally and also to keep COVID under control when it does flare up. One of the things I've found difficult to explain to people, I've been writing quite a bit on this since the beginning, and since early have been relatively reassuring in the sense of the threat to the individual as far as this disease is concerned. For most people, especially for younger people and people who are healthy, the risks on an individual level are very small. And so I'm being asked, you know, you're telling us that everything's okay, we don't need to panic on the one hand. Now you're saying everybody needs to be vaccinated and you know, we can't open up the borders because of the risk of the, of the epidemic burning through. And it's this sort of concept, isn't it, that it, it's like a fire burning. If we let this fire burn too aggressively, it reaches a threshold where it effectively overwhelms the health system. And, and we know once a health system's overwhelmed, we start to get an increase in mortality of anything up to tenfold because of the fact that the health system collapses. And that's really what we're trying to avoid in Hong Kong, isn't it? So if you think back to November, when we had our fourth wave, the case numbers were coming up and up and up, and it hit about 100 a day, and then it got under control. And it stayed at a high level for a while. It took a while to come down again. But the case numbers never hit 200 a day. But if the epidemic had been allowed to continue without all those social distancing measures being brought back, without people changing their behaviour and staying at home, it wouldn't have taken long to go from 100 to 200 to 400 to 800 and so on. In the past, these these uh, epidemic sizes have doubled about every week without control. So you, if the social distancing measures aren't used, then the numbers very, very quickly get out of control. And that's when the, the hospitals, the isolation facilities, the doctors and nurses have trouble keeping up with the numbers. And we, we don't want that to happen. And we're still completely vulnerable because we've had probably half a percent of the population infected so far. Vaccination coverage is coming up now, but it's still a long way from any kind of level that would prevent ep- epidemics from occurring. What we've seen in other countries, you've got to get way beyond 50% to have a chance of herd immunity. Absolutely. And it is devastating. I mean, a few weeks ago, I interviewed my son on here. I think I've spoken to you about this. He's an intensive care doctor in East London, and it was taking eight hours to get patients into hospital. The hospital system was, was at a threshold where it didn't collapse, but it was close. And this is a horrible potential epidemic if it burns. As you know, I'm a huge optimist. And notwithstanding what I've just said there, the early efficacy data, efficacy is the evidence that we get of effectiveness of an an intervention in in very precise terms, isn't it, in in a controlled trial environment. And the efficacy data was looking good. But the effectiveness studies, those are the studies of, of what happens when you take the vaccines, in this case, into real life. And my read of the effectiveness studies on uh, the vaccines for the SARS-CoV-2 virus are absolutely off the charts, I would say. What what, what would you think? They're they're fantastic. So what we've seen for all the vaccines that are being used in Hong Kong and other places, they're all excellent at protecting individuals from getting severely ill with COVID. So even if you get infected, the infection is ameliorated, It's, it's modified to be less severe. And so vaccinated people have a very, very low risk of 
getting serious COVID. That's an excellent reason for individuals to choose to get vaccinated because if we were all to get vaccinated, then there wouldn't be any risk of people getting hospitalized anymore based on that kind of data because the vaccines are so good at reducing the severity of infections even when breakthrough infections occur. Some of the recent data I've seen is also showing effectiveness at reducing milder illness and possibly transmission. I think from the SIREN study, it suggested that healthcare workers, there's a 50% reduction in infections in the family members of healthcare workers. Certainly the healthcare study in the UK and in Israel shows highly effective in preventing symptomatic disease, doesn't it? Yeah, so what we've always been concerned about with the COVID vaccines is whether they prevent all infections or just the more severe ones. So it's very clear from all the trials that have been done that the vaccines are excellent at preventing people from getting very, very sick from COVID. So that's a great job for the individual. But there's still this question about to what extent do the vaccines limit mild infections or even asymptomatic infections? And then what's the potential that someone could still get infected? after they've been vaccinated and could still pass on infection? What's the effectiveness of the vaccine in preventing someone from being contagious? So if you protect them from being infected, then they couldn't be contagious. But what if you only protected them from getting a severe disease, but not a mild disease, and they were somehow able to spread it? And what we've seen is with some of the vaccines, at least, they are extremely effective against transmission, extremely effective against even very mild infections. So I've seen one study in Israel where the the estimate was something like at least 90% effective against transmission, meaning most likely 90% effective against any infection. And then we've seen the headline number 95% against mild to moderate disease and 99% plus against severe disease with hospitalization. And so that's great news because that gives us our pathway to herd immunity. If we can use the vaccines to stop people from even getting infected or from being infected and being able to pass on infection, then that's when you can get herd immunity for a population. So the great news is that the vaccines are fantastic on an individual level. They really protect individuals. If you you take a vaccine, it's extremely unlikely you're going to die or get admitted to intensive care as a result of the illness. I know you're not a big fan of needles, are you, Ben? But we've both both had our injections in the last few weeks. I, I, I have a childhood fear of needles and vaccinations, but I went along and did it. I got my first dose. Uh, last week and uh, I'll get my second dose in a couple of weeks time. And so vaccinations are being rolled out maybe a little bit disappointing at the beginning in terms of the pickup rate and we've certainly got some issues with vaccine hesitancy in Hong Kong and we talked about this before as you know I did a, a hesitancy survey and got very high response rate in our population and yet at the end of the day there were still plenty of vaccine slots and that's a concern isn't it? And, yeah. and, uh, we've been looking at hesitancy here as well we've been doing quite regular surveys of the, the population in Hong Kong and we've had a, a fairly consistent impression of, of the situation over the past maybe two or three months, there's a minority of people who are very keen to get vaccinated as soon as they have the chance, and that's been running at about 20%. There's an even smaller minority who say they don't want to get vaccinated at all, very anti-vaccination, that's maybe 10%. And then everyone else, that's maybe the 70%, is hesitant. So it's not that they don't want to get it, they're kind of just hesitating and maybe waiting to see what happens. I'm not sure exactly what they're waiting for, what are they looking for that's going to make them decide they're going to get it or or they're going to wait longer. But for now, there is, as you mentioned, a lot of hesitation. We're having more and more vaccines coming to Hong Kong every month, so there will be vaccines for everyone to to get it. And I hope that we'll, we'll be able to get a high uptake, ultimately. 
Yeah, I've given quite a number of talks on vaccination recently, and I think the concerns most commonly expressed relate to safety. I mean, we know that the vaccines are effective, so we've got evidence that they work for sure. So it's safety. There's this question, have the vaccines been rushed? And then there's the way it's been handled locally in the media hasn't particularly helped. I think the, the, the ability to explain the naturally occurring incidents that we see in the community. So as an example, there will be people who die every day in the, in the city, so 14 to 16 deaths from cardiovascular disease and about eight from strokes every day. And so it's hard. And we saw this with AstraZeneca in, in Europe recently, didn't we? This, this very unusual cavernous sinus thrombosis and, and platelet deficiency syndrome and, and a potential DIC where we, you know, that we, if we see a couple of these unusual cases, there's a question raised as to whether it could be associated with vaccination. It's a dilemma. How do you keep, whether you keep going with a program? I mean, what's your read on the safety? There's two aspects to safety, I think. One is the common but very, very mild side effects. Like the day after I got vaccinated, my arm felt quite sore. It was like a dead arm, like someone had punched me in the arm. And we expect those kind of reactions. We know some people will have a fever. Other people might feel tired but it passes. That's maybe just the day after vaccination and then you go back to normal. So that's one aspect of the safety which we understand very, very well. And there's really nothing to worry about from from these vaccines in that sense. And then the other aspect of safety is the rare events. If you vaccinate a large group of people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, then things will happen to those people, just like things happen in, in the population every day. As you mentioned, there's people having strokes and heart attacks every day. So if you if you want to understand whether the vaccines are increasing the risks of those events, you need to have a good read of what the baseline rate of those events is to start with. And one of the things I've been a little bit disappointed with in, in the past few weeks is not really having a good read of either what the baseline event rate is or what's the characteristics of people who've been vaccinated. And one of the questions I'm still waiting to, to hear the answer to is what's the age range of people that have received the vaccine so far? Because if we're talking about a lot of people in their 60s getting vaccinated, then we know there's a, in that age group, for every 10,000 people in their 60s, there's one or two deaths a week. But if you talk about a lot of people in their 30s, 40s, 50s getting vaccinated, the mortality rate, the heart attacks, the strokes are much lower. So if you want to make a comparison, draw a comparison to say that the the rate of, of events in vaccinated people is the same as in the community. The first step of that is dividing down by age and saying among people age 60 who've got vaccinated, there's this rate and among the general population of the same age, it's, it's this rate and it's about the same. Because I don't think there's anything to worry about with the sign of that vaccine and those heart attacks and, and so on. Those rates are just going to be consistent with the population rate. But I haven't seen a, a very convincing calculation so far to prove that. That that's the case and so that's that i guess that factors into to the community kind of hesitancy because hong kong people have a lot of common sense they they understand uh things like that very well and so when there's a vague calculation given given by an expert that there's nothing to worry about because people die every day that's not convincing enough we'd like to know what the numbers are and show us that the rate is about the same which I think it would be if someone did the calculation. It's not just Hong Kong, as it was seen, very similar things playing out in Europe. My understanding of this is that the AstraZeneca studies, which were published in the Lancet, weren't they, of the 300 and odd cases, only five were over the age of 55. And yeah. so 
two different things happened here, didn't it? In the UK, the vaccine agency took the view there's no pharmacological, physiological reason why the immunisation should stop working when you reach the age of 55. We've done antibody studies. We've taken a view that these vaccines are going to be effective. We just haven't been able to prove it, so we're going to give them. Whereas in Europe, the view was taken that we haven't been able to prove it, so we're not going to give them. And now we have the effectiveness studies. That AstraZeneca study from Scotland was 92% over the age of 80. I mean, it was, it was actually better than, than the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine in the over 80s. And so in that sense, the UK Medicine Agency were shown to be correct, weren't they? And I guess we could maybe look at that and say a similar thing has played out in Hong Kong, hasn't it, with, with Sinovac, that we don't have evidence of the vaccine over the age of 60. In fact, we don't really have very much evidence for Sinovac being published except in press reports, do we? But because we don't have evidence that it's proven in efficacy studies doesn't mean that it's not going to be very effective once it's we finally have that data. Does that, so make, that, sense? that make sense? I, I think one other factor for maybe the UK to, to consider, and I think the Europeans should have also taken this into consideration, is that there's a lot of infections in the community. Looking back in the past months, a lot of risk of people getting infected and vaccines given at an early date can save lives really, really clearly in the UK and in Europe. And we've seen that happen. We've seen in, in the UK high coverage now in older people with the AstraZeneca vaccine as well as the BioNTech vaccine and those vaccines have undoubtedly saved people's lives and if the UK had decided not to use AstraZeneca and only use BioNTech at that point then the people who would got AstraZeneca there wouldn't have been enough BioNTech because they don't have the supply at this point in time so those people would have been vulnerable to getting infected and I think from a public health point of view you want to do the best this make the best decision you can at the time with the tools available and so it made complete sense to use AstraZeneca even though there was limited evidence on how well it worked there's a lot of evidence that it should be effective and it can save lives and for Hong Kong for using Sinovac I understand the rationale for the decision as well that we have a million doses of BioNTech coming in if we were to have a surge in infections then beyond that 1 million people that could get BioNTech or the 500,000 that could get two doses, if other people could also get Sinovac, then that could save lives because it's very clear that, that the Sinovac vaccine can save people's lives if they were to get infected. So I, I think there are some parallels between the two. But we don't have the data to prove that. And I guess that's that. You know, sometimes you're making decisions in public health terms in evolving epidemics on, on, on a best available evidence only in, in retrospect the, the UK decision go with AstraZeneca and also I think also in retrospect the decision to vaccinate as many people as possible with the first dose has been shown to be the right decision hasn't it? I think so I, the, one of the concerns that we we haven't yet been able to look at really carefully is whether having this partial immunity from the first dose but not the second whether that's going to somehow let in some variance so because there's a partial protection it's like a filter to say if there's a variant, like another another variant from the UK, that that would somehow have a chance to gain a foothold in a partially vaccinated population. But that hasn't happened so far. Um, that that was one of the concerns with that strategy, which I think was was a reasonable concern. But it, it saved people's lives because one dose, if it's 60, 70 percent effective, as opposed to two doses, even more, then you want to give more people one dose because the the benefit of each dose is a is a greater benefit if given to someone who hasn't had any vaccine. So if you've got two grandparents, you'd rather vaccinate each of them with one dose than have one of them get two doses and the other one neither. Because it's 
on average, it's going to have a greater population impact, a greater population benefit. So I, I think that made a lot of sense. And I wonder why some other places didn't didn't think about the same thing. I think Canada may be doing something similar. I think it makes sense, doesn't it, in, in populations with high disease prevalence and low vaccine supply, whereas in Hong Kong, we have low disease prevalence at the moment and we have adequate vaccination or we will be getting adequate vaccination. So what we really need is to get adequate vaccinated people, isn't it? We need to drive the vaccination program. Yeah, I think we'd we'd like to get up to a high level of coverage with two doses each. We're not in a hurry to just give out one dose first and then come back for the second dose later. We can, we've got time. We've got months ahead of us when we're unlikely to have a lot of COVID circulating. And we can get the doses in to Hong Kong. We've ordered plenty, more than enough for the population uh, from a few different companies. And so we'll, we'll have the supply. If we use the supply, we could aim to go back to normal by later this year. Well, given a choice of you know, getting more people vaccinated, there's always two ends of the spectrum, isn't there? At one end, you mandate and you force vaccination. At the other end, you encourage, educate. And we've always gone for the encourage, educate, and maybe also a little bit of nudge to try to encourage and act. You know, that nudge could be in the form of easier quarantine or easier travel. Or There's been some appeals, I know, by some members of the political establishment to look at payment for vaccination. But what are your thoughts on the, on the nudging we could use, Ben? Do you think vaccinated individuals are going to find it easier to travel and quarantine within the next six months? Given the uptake is still relatively low but, but coming up, I don't think there's any urgency to think about incentives directly to get vaccinated, like financial incentives. Maybe that's going to come up later. But I do think it's time to start thinking about how vaccinated people could be given some less stringent requirements in certain circumstances. So so one example I've been thinking about is the contact tracing and quarantine. If someone's contact traced as a close contact of a case, if that person's been fully vaccinated, then their risk of infection is much, much lower. And so maybe exempting that person from quarantine instead replacing it with mandatory testing at day zero, day 12, as if they were in quarantine. That may be quite rational from public health point of view, and at the same time an incentive then for for people to consider getting vaccinated. But for travel-related vaccine passports, I think that's a more difficult sell. And what I've been thinking about is, is in Hong Kong, we're trying really hard to keep infections out of Hong Kong. And that's why we have now a 21-day quarantine. I think 14 days might be sufficient. It's been sufficient in mainland China, Taiwan, Macau, Australia, New Zealand. In the mainland, they they sometimes have 14 days plus another seven in a home. But the, the, the typical quarantine is 14 days first in a hotel. And so if we were to allow people to come into Hong Kong without undergoing quarantine because they've been vaccinated with, with some kind of vaccine passport, we'd risk having importations of the virus into the city because the vaccines are not 100%. They're very, very good and they'll prevent the vaccinated person from getting severely ill from COVID. But as we said earlier, their effectiveness against maybe mild infection is not 100%. So if we have a whole lot of travellers coming in from Europe, from the US, who've been vaccinated, right, most of them wouldn't be infected, but maybe one or two could be could come in without the need for quarantine, test negative at the border, but incubating the infection and then come in and then start an outbreak. And then all the efforts that we've been making over the past year are kind of lost in that sense. Because then we've got to crack down again on on local outbreaks and it's going to make it more tough for us in Hong Kong to deal with COVID if we don't have that strict border control. 
But of course, if in Hong Kong we have herd immunity locally, then it doesn't matter if there's infections coming into the city because they won't be able to spread. The reason that we're vulnerable right now is because we have such a low level of immunity in the population, such a high level of susceptibility. So any infection that comes in can spread. I think that's a good point. Maybe not quite as optimistic as I usually like to end on, Ben. I thought maybe we could all get back to normal next week, but sounds like we may have a little way to go in terms of border control. And we certainly are going to need increasing levels of immunity in our population. And the only way we can achieve that as as we know, is by letting the infection run through, which we can't afford to do from a public health perspective, or encouraging vaccination. So I guess the message is to keep the education and the encouragement and and open communication and honest explanations of potential side effects and risks and benefits and allowing people to make their informed decisions. My sense is that we're going to see an increasing uptake as people gradually understand and, and, and become more comfortable with the, with the benefits of uh, a vaccination, particularly as we're seeing such fantastic results from other parts of the world. Oh, well, thanks very much for that one. We'll see you again in another month or so. Great, yeah, happy to talk. Thank you for listening. Further information about COVID-19 vaccines, including links to the studies discussed in this podcast, are available on the OTMP website. We have also produced a timeline in which all our previous communications are available as a historical record, placing our opinions and advice in the context of the evolving pandemic. If you enjoyed this interview, please don't forget to like, comment and share wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Further information about COVID-19 vaccines, including links to the studies discussed in this podcast, are available on the OTMP website. We have also produced a timeline in which all our previous communications are available as a historical record, placing our opinions and advice in the context of the evolving pandemic. If you enjoyed this interview, please don't forget to like, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.